Welcome to episode 158 of Control the Controllables. And today is a very special episode because we come to you as the best tennis podcast of 2021, voted by you guys. Thank you. Thank you all for, for voting us in at the Sports Podcast Awards. An incredible feeling for all of the team last Thursday night when we when we found it out. We never expected it. So many other fantastic tennis podcasts out there and a big honour, a big, big privilege and something we take take very seriously. And we, we promise we will try and carry this forward over the next 12 months as your, as your tennis podcast of 2021. So thank you all. And we're bringing you a brilliant guest to celebrate that fact. There's no reason that a female can't serve, relatively speaking, uh, as well as, as a guy. Obviously, there are some some differences in sometimes height, but sometimes not. We know a lot of tall yep. females. Strength is a component of it. But if females are training right off court, they can get really strong in the right areas. It's not the player's fault most of the time. It's the environment that they've grown up in. Dr. Mark Kovacs, the chief performance officer at the Kovacs Institute. Listen carefully because he is a high performance expert, a sport technology consultant, a performance psychologist, a researcher, a professor, an author, a speaker and coach with an extensive background training and researching elite athletes. And he is known as the go-to expert for professional athletes, for corporate executives, people that are looking for science-based programming to optimize human performance. Now, that is a mouthful. That is a lot of things that this man does. He's the same age as me, and I'm still a young pup. I was at university, not with him, but we played against each other. Uh, A man never tells so i'm not gonna i'm not gonna talk about what the result was you can maybe google it and find out but i i've known mark for 20 plus years now and i'd say this to him in the episode but a, a few years after we we graduated in college i was trying to find a little bit of information on the serve and somebody said i'll oh, go to the serve doctor go and listen to the serve doctor and i was like serve doctor and i was like mark kovacs i, I recognize that name and it was, it was, it was Mark Kovacs, who was now Dr. Mark Kovacs, only a few years out, out of graduating from university. And he's gone on to some just amazing things, worked with so many players, including John Isner, Sloan Stevens, Madison Keys, Donald Young. He's working in the NBA, working across sports and does a fantastic job. It's a great episode. You'll love it. Notepad and pen time. Pass you over to Dr. Mark Kovacs. So, Mark Kovacs, a big welcome to Control the Controllables. How are you doing? I'm doing awesome. How are you? I'm good. A little bit, a little bit under the weather. I think this, uh, this, the Spanish weather. I'm, I'm used to sunshine, but it's been going uh, in between sun and rain the last couple of days it's this season change that i'm putting it down to so uh but but all the better for having you on mark and to to start us off i i have to ask did you watch the oscars last night i did actually yes i i was watching the oscars obviously the venus and serena 
uh, story is is close to me, and you know, knowing a lot of the characters involved in in the film, I was curious to see how that went. And you have to break it down then. The Will Smith slap on Chris Rock. How how did how did he do from a biomechanical standpoint? Yeah, purely from a biomechanic <laughs> standpoint, he definitely loaded his back leg well. You saw he really stabilized through that hip really well. And then he rotated his torso, came through with his arm. And I mean, it was a really good, if you're comparing it to a forehand, it looked quite similar to a forehand. He had a full extension, full follow through. So there, there was a lot of things that you could take away from that from a forehand perspective. But just, I mean, unbelievable and well described because already I think there's some... There's all of the gifts and, and every social media has gone wild and added Wilson rackets to the end of his hand and all of those things. But I guess, but I think a little bit of a shame as well, though, when we should have been celebrating two of two of our greatest, you know, two of our greatest to ever walk on the courts. And there's so many positives that could have come out of that story. And we should be raving about the Williams sisters, about Richard, about, you know, bringing that, that story to life. And instead we're talking about a couple of males that have, that have made errors again. So a, a real shame, but I think a topic that we had to start with because it's such a hot topic, but everyone's here today, Mark, to, to hear about you. And, and, and I am as well, because we go a long way back. You know, we go back to 1998. Both of us were freshmen going into the SEC, you know, me at LSU and you at Auburn. And then I've watched from afar as your career's developed incredibly well. Uh, but I, I'm always interested in this, in this podcast, Mark, on I think there's a way into the sport and then there's a way out and not always out of the sport, but out of playing. And I think those two things are, are always fascinating because there's so many different ways it can go. So what was your in? When did the, when did the tennis bit start for you? Yeah, no, I mean, I was fortunate. I had a, a parent that played. So like a lot of people, that's what brought me into the game. Uh, it was really babysitting. My dad played a lot. And he would just drop me at the courts when he would go play and there was a wall there and there were a few other kids that were being dropped off the same way. And it was like three or four hours of just hitting against the wall and, you know, playing with other kids. And then once you got up to a level at the end of the three hours that they played their kind of league matches, you'd maybe get on the courts for three or four minutes and hit around. And that was like the best part of the day. And that was how I started. Um, never really took a formal lesson till probably 11 or 12. So I sort of just learned, you know, from the people at this club. It was very much an old school type of club where, you know, juniors would play with seniors. You'd have a bench and you'd just wait and it would be next. Whatever court was open, you'd jump on and they'd, you'd figure out a game. And it was, it was very different than how things are done today, at least, um, where everything's so structured. This was literally like pickup basketball. It was pickup tennis. It was exactly how pickup tennis um, was done. And it was a great environment because you learned to play with adults. You learned to play with super seniors. You learned to play with ladies. You learned to play with everyone. And someone being 9, 10, 11 years old, you don't really see that today. Most of the time, kids play with kids and they don't get exposed to all the different spins and strategies and techniques and things like that. It is. It's a. It is a very similar story, you know. And like I say, you're guest number one sixty or so on on the on this podcast. And there's been very few 
that haven't organically been introduced to the sport through a parent, through living next door to a tennis club? And, and how quickly did it start to become a little bit more serious? And at this point, I've also got to mention, this was obviously back in Australia. Mm -hmm. Yeah, correct. So, yeah, like I played like a lot of kids our age. We played a lot of sports. So, you know, I, I was pretty good at cricket. Cricket was a sport I played a lot of and was at a high sort of, you know, state national type level. Um, and then played Australian rules football until about 12, um, pretty competitively as well. Um, and that was when Connie had to make a decision at about 12. Australian rules football is pretty rough and tumble. And if you wanted to go that route, you sort of had to not play a lot of other sports well because you were so tired from practicing and you got hit a lot. So I sort of made that decision at about 12 that tennis was sort of where I'd spend majority of my time. Uh, but, I, I, you know, the, the beauty of tennis, which s s suited my personality a bit, was it was all on my shoulders, good or bad. You win or you lose. It's my fault. Um, you don't have teammates. Uh, you have to sort of do it yourself. You can't really blame anyone else, which I sort of like. I mean, we know losses hurt. Losses hurt really badly. You can't blame anyone else. But you also could always get back on the practice court the next day and try to work on something, try to figure it out, try to find that solution to why the loss occurred uh, and build off that. And then U.S. College, U.S. College came up. Before that, was was it was there a possibility of you going and playing professional tennis at that point? You know, if someone from Australia back in those days, not that many players maybe went to U.S. College. Right. So, 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 how did that come about? Yeah, so I was in sort of the top three or four in the country for you know from about fourteen onwards. You know, I was I was good. I wasn't a top twenty junior in the world, but I I, I had some good wins. Was going along that path to probably to, uh, play professionally. Um, and when I was 16, I, I got a case of mono pretty badly. I didn't realize I had it. I was playing a national tournament uh, and woke up one day and just couldn't lift my head off the pillow. Kept playing the event, you know, three more days, kept playing through it, just thought it was a regular cold. Um, finished the event and then got home and saw the doctor and basically, you know, couldn't couldn't leave the house, and it, it got pretty bad. So I was I was uh, unable to really leave the house for a, about six weeks. Um, lost a ton of weight, couldn't really hit tennis balls for probably three or four months, uh, and that sort of made the decision a little bit for me. Okay. I was right. I was right on the sort of you know barrier. I could have flipped the coin whether I was going to go straight professional or, or go to college. Um, looking back, you know. Yeah, it's one of those times where, you know, that may have been the best thing that happened to me because I, I definitely wasn't wasn't ready to play professional at that time at the level I needed to. You could win matches at, at futures and challenges, but as we know, there's a big jump. And when you're 17, 18, you, you know, you, you don't have the full exposure to what's out there. Um, so the plan was to go for six months and then, then go play. Um, so... That was, that was a unique story in itself. So I definitely think it's a huge opportunity for players and it's pretty easy to determine. We've done a lot of studies on this, looking at player pathways to professional tennis and yep. where you need to be at certain levels to make that decision easier. And there's very few players where uh, it's a bad decision to go to college. The, the ones that are, 
are very obvious. I mean, you've got a handful of players, uh, mainly US players that have to make that decision. Most Europeans uh, and, and most other countries that are at a level where they have financial support, because that's the big one. Do you have a sponsor? Do you have a federation? Do you have someone that's willing to pay a couple hundred thousand dollars a year for you to get good coaching, good travel, those first couple of years where you're not making enough money? If you don't have that accessible to you, it makes it really, really hard and unnecessary. When I say unnecessary is you can go, you know, stay at a really nice place, eat good food, get good treatment, have gym access, hit with good players and still play 15 tournaments a year, even while you're at school uh, and then get your ranking into the top three or 400 and then make the jump. To me, that's the easiest, best way to do it for players that are, are on that edge. If you're a superstar and you've been tracking a top 10, top 25, top 50 pro career from 14 or 15, you're going to get the million dollar plus check from someone um, to go travel, good to go play because your results show that you're already basically at that level or close to that level. For everyone else, it's to me a really simple decision to make. In terms of the the finance piece, more just more more just for the listeners. If you've got a couple hundred thousand dollars a year to travel, but you're not of the level of a tennis player, that money ain't going to do anything for you. You know, certainly not gonna not gonna take you to be the next yeah. Rafael Nadal. So, in terms of the figures, and I know you're very data driven in what in what you do, which I love. You know. What what figures and do those figures change from men and the women's side when it comes down to a decision? So if you were if you were advising a decision of a of a player to go to college or not, take away any personal side of this. If you're looking purely from a data point of view, what would what would be the the data tracking on the on the male side and the female side? Yeah, it's, it's a great point. And as we know, um, males have a slightly more depth when it comes to when you break even financially um, in the yep. tour. Um, but it's not, it's getting narrower and narrower just because of how much the Grand Slams have, have provided over the last few years. As we know, if you can get inside the top 100 and get main draw into the Grand Slams, that's a, that's a few hundred thousand dollars a year right there. And that's assuming you don't make anything else. So right there, you're already sort of covering your expenses. And then everything on top of that usually becomes, um, you know, some of the savings or you can put it towards a potentially higher level or more experienced coach, a better physio, um, possibly better food on the road, maybe better accommodations, things like that. But every dollar you spend as a tennis player should be looked at as an investment. But from a standpoint of where the numbers show you should be typically it's hard to say because I'm a little more us centric um, from yep. the standpoint of where you need to be in the junior levels. Uh, typically in most high level countries, you need to be number one or two in your country to, to have a chance. It's just based on numbers. Every, every age group, it's unlikely that more than one player, many times it's not even one age group that will actually make it. Um, so in the world rankings, and again, it's COVID's made a mess of all our data, unfortunately, yeah. because all the data pre-COVID was really consistent and really good because you had really good numbers on 
um, ATP and WTA or you know ITF levels at the um, senior level, so challenges and things like that. You had pretty good data at the junior level, although there was a big shift over the last four or five years on the guy side. A lot less players were playing the top ITF junior events, but you you pretty much needed to be on the women's side one to two years above your age group, which I think a lot of females don't realize. Like if you're number one in your country at 18, you're actually two years behind the best in the world most of the time. You need yep. to be number one in your country at 18 when you're 15 or 16. And that's usually the sign that you're on that top, top tier pathway. Doesn't mean there aren't late bloomers. There are, but they're always in the mix, meaning that they're, three, four, five, six, seven in the country. Um, but And then many of them, you know, may take a year or two longer to get there if they have the discipline, if they have the right support system, if they have the physical gifts as well. Yeah, I mean, I've always, I guess my very basic, just from experience, thought process has been, if you want regularly winning, making final of your 15K events, age 17, 18, then you should go to college. You know, if you're, I guess if you're doing that, you're already a kind of four or 500 player in the world type type level. If you're not doing that, if you're winning, you're qualifying, winning the odd round, you know, sometimes losing in qualies, having the odd quarter final. I don't think that's enough to justify what you get, what you're going to need. I don't know what you think about that. No, I agree a hundred percent. You're not good enough today. It doesn't mean you won't be good enough. Yeah. Uh, it just means today you're not at that top tier level. And you can, listen, if you've got the resources, if you've got some way to fund that lifestyle and, and do it, that's fine if that's the lifestyle you want. But it, it's just a harder way of doing it. You just don't have as many resources. Um, people say, well, college could be a distraction because there's parties, there's all the coursework, there's all that. There is, but as you know, as I know, I wouldn't know about I wouldn't know about the distractions, Mark. There's no and 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 just as many distractions there are in colleagues. There's a lot um, out in the pro lifestyle as well. I mean, it's all about how you handle them and and how you deal with them. But the beauty about colleagues it gives you a few other benefits. It gives you a time management skill that you you are going to need if you make it as professional tennis player you're going to have media requirements sponsor events you're going to have to deal with um family or friends on tour that you're going to have to make time for um all those things you can learn a little bit in that college environment of how to say no when to divide your time into training recovery nutrition schoolwork, sleep all those yeah. things so there's great opportunities to do it well but you got to have the right people around you helping you guiding you making sure that you're on the right track and if we go back to your your personal story you you went to auburn you know you did your years at auburn had a good college career winning the ncaa's in your final year correct in your you know which ncaa's to those listening it's the it's the highest achievement you can have it's the big national level event at the at the end of the year you have to have the ranking to qualify so if you're if you're winning that you are tracking into being a, a, a professional so you're you're tracking to be a professional doubles player if you're winning the doubles NCAAs 
Did you then take the step into professional tennis or did your playing tennis stop there? Yeah, so my, my story or issue was a little interesting. So when I started at all, when I started getting some shoulder problems, literally actually a few weeks beforehand, um, I was playing the US Open juniors, uh, played doubles with Andy Roddick at the junior US Open that year and played a tournament down in New Orleans. It was a um, ITF. Sugar Bowl. Yep, the Sugar Bowl. And started getting a bunch of like this dead arm feeling like, you know, never really had a shoulder issue at all in my life and started getting like this dead feeling in my arm. Couldn't lift it very easily. Didn't really know what it was. Get to Auburn, you know, we, you know, start playing. Don't think much of it. You sort of, you know, work through it towards the middle of the season. It starts getting worse. You know, we have Dr. James Andrews was our team doc at the time. Um, if anyone knows sports medicine, he's kind of like the most famous surgeon uh, in the U.S., does all the big NFL guys, NBA guys. Um, and so so he comes down on his plane uh, mainly to see football, but then they feed in the tennis guys for about two minutes at the end of the session. One of his fellows, not him, but one of his six or seven people that are with him, um, takes a look and says, hey, ice and stim, you'll be fine. You're a tennis guy. You're not making any money for the university. So, you know, just, let's just manage it. So you sort of go through at that time. This is over 20-something years ago now. So it's very different now, obviously. Uh, but kind of work through it. And the, the interesting part was my surf speed, you know, I had a, you know, 120-mile-an-hour, 125-mile-an-hour surf coming in. I surfed pretty decently. Um Every year in college, it went down about five to 10 miles an hour. So it finished at about 95 to 100 miles an hour. And that's what gravitated me towards doubles as well. Um, if you ever ask Eric Shaw, our coach, he said, yeah, it was, it was sad watching, watching you serve because all I would do is hit a little slice, nothing serve, like a knuckleball into the body or out wide and try to bluff your way to the net and you know try to survive at the net. Uh, so that was kind of the problem for me. I sort of knew pretty much my senior year I wasn't going to play professionally because I just couldn't serve very well. Um, and that's what got me into the whole area of understanding the body, injuries, um, serving especially became a real area of interest. Uh, and that's kind of got me into that environment. So I played a few months after. We played a few challenges. You know, you know, won some matches. It was it wasn't like you weren't winning, but it was it was very uncomfortable. The pain was pretty bad. Immediately, the thing that stopped me completely was I hit a serve um, at a tournament and my elbow dislocated, um, which oh. doesn't happen. That's not a ten, that's not a tennis injury. But what had happened was the bicep tendon um, had torn uh, at the top. It was already torn, but you were playing through it. But it completely tore, um, and that required. Uh, surgery you couldn't keep playing on it it was impossible so that was sort of the end end moment and knowing what you now know about the serve and I don't think there's much to know about the serve that you don't know which we're gonna we're gonna jump on to in 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 a minute was that down to technique was that down to not having the right fundamentals what do you what do you reflect on that and put that down to yeah, it's, it's a great question. There was a couple of things you look back on and you're like, yeah, I did that wrong. I was taught that wrong. There was definitely a, a couple of movements that um, didn't help. Uh, so that was a big part of it. Also, when I, I grew up, we hit 
a lot of serves. I mean, you know, where I grew up, it was normal to hit 500 serves a day. Um, so you, you hit a high volume um, of, of serves, which was looking back probably a little too much. Um, also, I, did, I was a fast bowler growing up when I was young in cricket. Yeah. And I had a lot of extra stress on the arm there. So you look at all those factors um, that all play a bit of a role. But probably one of the biggest issues was when I was um, 13, 12, 13, it's kind of like the last season of playing Australian rules football. Um, I broke my right ankle. I'm a lefty um, and didn't really rehab it well enough, I don't think. And so always had a slight imbalance down there. And after understanding the body and all the different issues that you have as a, as a tennis player, they all, a lot of them stem from that and not fully rehabbing that and then changing your dynamics, changing your gait, changing how you load. And a lot of that potentially had some influence as well. So like we always say, injuries is rarely one thing alone. Um, The symptom is obvious because that's where the pain is. The cause many times is complex and multifactorial. And you've got to really take a full holistic view. So it's really hard to say an injury is 100% caused by one thing. But usually there's three or four things that if you address, um, and we've, I've seen that over the last two decades of working with people, you fix the right thing, it nearly immediately takes care of the other thing if you do it right. It's such a, it's such a fascinating story, that, because people know Dr. Mark Kovacs and uh, you know, I, I always, I always think in any area of passion that people get into, it's always very interesting how, and it's often a, it's often a personal story and a personal reason as to, as to why people do get in. Because if I go fast forward a few years after we graduated, I believe we graduated same year, 2002, I was, I was asking someone about something on the serve because I, I, I certainly, even to this day, I think it's the hardest shot in tennis to teach. You know, I think there's so many complexities to it. And somebody said me something and said, um, oh, this is from the world leader in tennis serving, Dr. Mark Kovacs. And I was like, I was probably just opening another beer as I was questioning what I was doing with my life, as I think a lot of us were a few years, a few years after graduating. And already you'd got yourself into this position where where you were seen as the world's leader in, in serving. And then obviously you've gone on and you know you've you've opened the Kovacs Institute now and and and, and, all, and all of those things. It seemed to happen quick because. 2002, you graduated. 2010, you were already winning awards. You know, 2012, you know, it was Hall of Fame. There was there was all all of these all of these bits that were going on whilst your peers were either grinding it out in Egypt still on the Futures Tour. You know, some of them might have gained entry into, into, into the main draws of Grand Slams. Some of them, maybe like me, were still drinking a beer, thinking, what am I going to do with my life? So how, how did you turn that around so quickly and, and I guess, put your, put your passion, your purpose into something that is, is provided so much value for so many people? Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's when you think back, it's like, I have never really thought of it that way. So thanks for asking the question in, in that frame of reference. But um, I really hated tennis 
the moment I stopped because it was the only thing I ever wanted to do was to be a professional tennis player. I didn't want anything to do with the sport completely. So I didn't pick up a racket, didn't step on a tennis court for probably three years. Um, So what I did, though, I knew I wanted to study the body, understand athletes and help athletes be better. So I ended up, you know, I was at IMG Academy um, for a short period, working with their football players, uh, working with their baseball guys, working with their sprinters at the time, and really got interested in sprinting, actually, um, and understanding the fastest people in the world. So I spent about a year and a half working with some of the top sprinters in the world, um, really understanding how do you make an athlete as fast as possible. That was sort of where I spent a ton of my energy. And I was fortunate to learn from some of the best speed and sprint coaches in the world. Um, you know, and that was an unbelievable experience because the intricacies of every step in a hundred meter race is amazing because every step is going to win or lose you a race. If you screw up one step, you're basically done. Um, so the detail and the biomechanics that goes into that really got me interested in that space. Um, so I spent a lot of time there and I was working as a strength coach. So, I, you know, I was in the weight room every day, um, with a lot of athletes that were lifting. The goal was speed and power predominantly wasn't really working in the endurance side of training. It was much more speed and power. How do we get athletes fast, all that. And then it was really strange. I was very fortunate to be staying at a house cause I had no money. Um, and it was a weird story. I, about six years earlier, I was playing a money tournament in Alabama, actually. Um, and it was actually in Rome, Georgia, sorry. And the massage therapist for the event um, was ma- married to a guy and they kind of took me in that week because I was by myself. And they said, well, come to the house for dinner. You don't know anyone. So I did. Then they moved down to Florida a few years later and they said, if you ever want to stay, stay with us. So I stayed with them for a summer. And then next door neighbor had like a 15 year old kid that wanted to play college tennis. And they heard I used to play tennis and they said, Hey, can you maybe get on court with this kid and show him something and help him in some way? And I really didn't want to, but it was like, I wanted to thank the people I was staying with and do whatever I could to help their friend. So I did. And that got me back into tennis and it was, it was fun. The kid was good. The kid ended up playing at Michigan um, so it was like a, a whole thing of just luck that brought me back into the sport and then they got the ball rolling and then I really got excited about it, ended up going on and doing my PhD, got connected with a couple of different folks and then, um, had some great mentors. And I think that's what ha- made that happen quickly was I was lucky enough to get exposed to Paul Rodert, um, Todd Allenbecker, Paul Lovers, Jack Roppel, Jim Lair, uh, a bunch of these guys that some of you may know their names, but um, they helped me a ton. I was, I was this young kid who kind of wanted to understand sports science and tennis, and they had all these years of experience, and they were an open book. They just said, hey, you know, follow them, learn from them. They sent me resources and things like that, and then I got to work with the USTA, which opens up a, a lot of doors, obviously, uh, and that was sort of how that whole process happened. And 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 I know you have been exposed to a lot of other sports, and and I know that you you still are. So where where did tennis? It, it almost hits me that 
there was a niche in tennis for this. You know, we're starting to get a little bit better with data in tennis. But if we go back 15, 20 years, it was almost non-existent that, you know, the, the data side of things, the video analysis side of things, you know, whereas in other sports, it feels as if they've always been ahead of us. For someone who's so close to the sport, tell us about the journey of tennis within that. Are, are, are we behind? Are we catching up? Where does tennis fit into that compared to other sports? Yeah, it's a great question. So uh, when people talk on data, a lot of the time I think they're talking on data analytics, strategy, stuff like that. And that world has improved a lot, but it's also become very messy, unfortunately, because people are overutilizing very small data sets to make gross generalizations. And and you're seeing it on tour. Many players are so indecisive about their own strategy because they're thinking about too much of what's happening down the other end of the court. And so they're trying to change game plan every, every match sometimes instead of figuring out what their best game plan is. Um, so I'm seeing it a lot more with players. And you see a lot of players have very up and down results. Much of it, I think, has to do with that, that they're changing their own strategy too much and they may not have the skill set to do that. They're, you know, their game plan A is probably their best chance of succeeding against most players at the highest level. And there may be a tweak here and there. Okay, you may throw in a slice every now and then, or you may do something slightly different, but you're not completely, if your best shot is backhand down, uh, cross court, you're not going to start hitting every backhand down the line, which some players are trying to do. Uh, so I think there's a, there's a risk there of overusing data that is inaccurate meaning that the accuracy of it may be okay for a small period, but you're generalizing it way past what the data was collected for. And that's a big concern. Yep. Uh, from a standpoint of, of video and, say, biomechanics, we're still pretty far behind. Uh, do a lot in baseball, do a lot in basketball, and, and quite a bit in soccer. And in, in baseball and golf, obviously, they do a lot of uh, video and biomechanics. Part of the reason is you're not really moving in golf and in baseball, yeah. hitting and pitching. You're very standard. Um, so it's kind of like the serve. You can do a lot more um, collection and you can do a lot more accuracy on what are fundamentals and what is style. Unfortunately, you, it's really hard to do that on ground strokes well because every ball is different. You're reacting to high balls, low balls, spin, speed, all that. So that's why there's so many different techniques out there. Uh, but the biggest thing is we got to focus on the fundamentals, which are consistent, and then the style is what lets everyone do their thing. But to go back to your original question, is, is tennis behind? Tennis is definitely behind for a few reasons. One, the technology companies have had a hard time figuring out how to get into tennis and get it done right. You've seen a ton of technology companies dip their toe in the sport, and then they really feel like there's a, there's a lot of barriers to entry. Coaches many times aren't first users, first adopters. They, there's a lot of um, negativity or um, you know they're, they're just insecure many times because they're not familiar with it, so they don't uh, uh, you know, embrace it. Um, you know, historically, tennis is an older sport. Um, so there's a lot of older, older people involved in leadership in the big organizations, and many of them aren't as familiar with it. 
So that's starting to change. You're starting to get younger people, people that are used to using their phone every day and used to using technology every yep. day and making more decisions. So progress is definitely being made, but there's also a lot of crap out there. And I caution people to make sure if you're looking at different technologies, that you make sure it's validated and it's reliable. Those are the two biggest things uh, that you need to, that it measures what it's supposed to measure first off and that it is reliable, meaning from day to day, you get the same results. If the data is bad, then your decision-making is going to be really bad. And having you on, there's so many bits I'd love to, I'm going to have to do, we're going to have to do like a five-part series or something, but otherwise it's going to be too long. So I, I want to delve into the serve. And I, I think it's, I think the serve is, is a great place for us to look. You you talk about style versus fundamentals. And, and I, I definitely want to get into that a little bit. I'd like to start at the, at the pro level, because I think it's, it's a, it's the level where, you would have spent your most time naturally and where, where more time, more research go, goes into. And as the saying goes, people don't care about what you know until they know how much you care, you know, and getting that, getting that buy-in and you, you've worked with a, with a lot, a lot of pro players, a lot of, a lot of players at a very high, at a very high level, how to start off with, how do you how do you go about getting the buy-in from from that type of player? Let's take a John Isner as an example. Yeah, I mean, from all the players' standpoint, I've never been the tennis coach. I think that's been the best way I've approached it. You yeah. know, I've got a, a good tennis background and knowledge, but I always work alongside their coach. Um, and so I'm an advisor, consultant, you know. Some, something in that role. So I'm there to support the team. And that's always been sort of my role in all these situations is how do we tweak little things uh, that can help these great athletes? Because anyone who's playing top 100 in the world tennis has got there for a reason. They've got a skill set that is above and beyond pretty much everyone else in the world. So you have to be really careful about overchanging as well. And I've seen that happen. Um, I've learned that from other sports, baseball, basketball, things like that. They're really concerned about major changes because you don't want to lose someone's natural sort of swing, they say, um, which is something true in tennis. If someone's 20 years old, 22, whatever it is, you're probably not doing a serve reconstruction. Um, you're not completely changing everything they've done. Their bodies adapt to that motion. It may not be perfect in the textbook definition, but it sort of works for them and they've adapted to it. So most of what we do is we look at cause and effect. So if the, you know, if the effect is, Hey, they miss a lot of serves in the net, or if their serve speed is say four miles an hour, less than what we think it should be. Um, and there's a technical reason for that. We try to, you know, highlight where that comes from. Is it, you know, lack of foot engagement into the ground? Is it lack of hip rotation? Uh, is it something with thoracic spine where they don't extend effectively? Um, is their range of motion a problem in their internal rotation? So when they make contact, they don't get full long axis rotation, which basically means they don't get optimum pronation is what a lot of coaches use the term. Uh, but it's a lot more than just pronation. Uh, so there's those type of things that you try to nail in on as to what is the cause. 
And many times coaches will say, well, they're collapsing at contact or, you know, their contact point is too low or they're too, you know, they're falling to the left. All the normal things that people see visually, but they don't exactly know what caused it. So we always try to figure out what the cause is. And that's usually how you get the buy-in is because you say, hey, everyone knows you're not hitting the serve well, you're missing or your percentages are low or there's something going on that your miles per hour or your RPMs or your, your second serve aren't high enough. Let's go and find the cause. And the buy-in is usually, hey, we're trying to come to this with some data. It's not, let's just try something. Yep. And I think one of the biggest challenges I have is a lot of coaches, a lot of players, they tinker and they try stuff without great justification. Hey, this player did it well. Why don't we try that foot stance? Or this player did it well with a higher toss or a lower toss. And you're like, yeah, but what are you actually trying to work on? And I think that's where you get the buy-in is you say, we've got a very precise reason for doing what we're doing. And we're not going to change anything unless we have a great justification to do it. And if you, I always say, if you don't feel an immediate improvement at that level within about 10 serves, it's the wrong fix Okay. from a technical standpoint, because they're such great athletes. They have good serves already because they're at a certain level. Um, if they don't feel an immediate improvement, it's not, you, you, you're trying to work on the wrong thing um, or physically they can't do it. And that's where we spend a lot of time physically saying, Hey, we may want you to turn more, or we may want you to get more um, range of motion here, but you don't have the ability physically right now. So we do a lot yeah. of physical screening and assessment to analyze that, to make sure that the coach hasn't been saying the right thing all along the player just can't do it. So the coaches love to hear when I say that. They're like, hey, you've been saying the right thing the entire time. The athlete just can't do it right now. They just physically don't have the mobility or the strength to do what you're asking them to do because you've seen another player do that so well. That's why it's really hard to compare athletes to each other because their strength levels are different, their mobility levels are different. And that's where I think a lot of coaches run into trouble they say, we want to use Sampras as a guide for a serve. I mean, people don't realize Pete He's Sampras so is one of the most mobile guys on the planet. Yeah. His elbows, when he puts his arms behind him, would touch without anyone helping him. He, he, so you can't get in the ranges that he got in. Um, so it's really, really important that people understand that. The objectiveness I, ups, I love. I love it to bits. So I, I I have to pick up on one one point that you made around the miles per hour or the speed that it should be. So how how do you make that objective? How how can you, if you're working with Isna and Isna's serving at 138 and you think he should be serving at 145, how how are you calculating the should be? Yeah, so that comes into a couple of things. One, we take it into account a strength and height relationship. Uh, and then do they have the parameters, meaning that if they have great long axis rotation, which is a big one, um, do they have great thoracic extension? Do they have great single leg strength on the back leg? All those factors correlate with surf speed. And if they are pretty good at all those and their surf speed is below where we estimate it should be, there's a technical issue normally. Um, if all those areas are a little weak, 
or a little below where they should be, then it's easy to increase speed or velocity without doing anything differently technically. We just fix those things physically. So you sort of have an estimate. You may be off by a mile or two, yep. but you sort of you have a clear defined range where these athletes should be able to go. And then it comes into, okay, now that you can easily hit that serve at say three or four or five miles an hour harder, now it's an accuracy question is, have you given up any accuracy? Because as we know, hitting it harder and not getting it in or hitting it harder and missing your spot by you know, a foot is a big deal at that level. Just because you hit a harder strike right into the guy's strike zone, that doesn't help you. I'd rather you hit it slower and, and hit it on the line than hit it a foot and a half inside the line where it goes right in the strike zone. So you have to find that balance with the athlete. And then the mental side comes into it is a huge aspect. What type of server are they? Are they a clutch server? Are they a ace go, go for the, you know, the win type server? Or are they, hey, I want to get confident. I want a high service percentage hitting my spots, making sure I don't put myself under extreme pressure on the second serve. Um, and that changes a lot. Obviously, the best servers have a server's mindset of every serve is an ace if they're thinking through it or it's an unreturnable of some sort. That's usually the mindset. I mean, you know, I don't know if anyone saw, you know, when, when there's certain servers out there that you know when they're feeling it, that, you know, you're in trouble because – the only way they're losing matches is if something unlucky usually happens. So like Isner's an example. He's a, you know, pretty cluck server. You know, Nick Kyrgios at his best when he's focused is one of those type servers. And, you know, it's these type of guys that that's their mindset is go up there and control the environment. Most players don't have that mindset, maybe because they don't have the serve confidence. Um, so they have to play around and, and play a smarter strategy. Uh, on the women's side, for example, you know you have a lot of players that could be great servers from a standpoint of strategy, but for whatever reason, they don't go to their strengths enough. And I'm really excited to see that in the next few years, some of these servers that will become super dominant, 20 plus aces a game on the women's side, I think is gonna become a little, you know, 15 to 25 aces a game a uh, match should be sort of starting to become more and more common. Yeah, I think there's a there's a, a few points. I, I'm fascinated by this subject. And my, my first one, I have to ask it because it's in my head. Who has, in your opinion, the best, the best biomechanical serve from a bio, biomechanical standpoint? Yeah, I mean, from a from a pure coil and load, Sampras is right up there. If you watch how effortless his entire yeah. motion is and how well he loads um it's right there john isner's right right up there as well uh, on the women's side you know serena's got a great serve um she she does a lot of things right she could even have a slightly better serve if you can believe it from a speed standpoint there's a couple things that if you get a little more coil um she would be even better um then you've got sam stoza who you know was phenomenal um, so yeah, so it's one of those things where you've got to look at, um, there's a few fundamentals that all the good servers do. Um, it's just physically there's certain athletes that are built to serve. And it's just like Michael Phelps in swimming or Usain Bolt in sprinting. They're built for that environment. They have longer arms, longer legs, longer hands for Phelps. 
than anyone else. And they've got the biomechanics, you know, they've got the genetics to be able to do certain things uh, with optimum technique. There's plenty of players that have great genetics and terrible technique, plenty of players that have really good technique. They just don't have the physical gifts to optimize that, that technique. I mean, we all see it. You can go down to any challenger and look and say, hey, that, that kid's got a great serve technically, but he hits it 115 miles an hour and he can't break an egg. Um, and that's, you know, part of the reason there is either physically he's a mess, which is many times the case, doesn't have the strength, doesn't have the range of motion, doesn't have the mobility. If his technique is good um, and he's only hitting a serve at 115 miles an hour, um, that's a sign that there's some physical stuff that can be improved. And I think the mental side that you talk about, I think this also fascinates me. Why women serve slower? Now I'm sure there's a there's a there's a physical element to that, but is that also partly because we've all made our minds up that women can't serve as well as men? So so then there isn't that intention to go out and really develop these these big serves. Like you're saying, hopefully in a few years' time, we'll have females on the tour that are regularly hitting 15, 20 aces a match. What what are purely from objective standpoint, why is it that that the women don't serve as big as the men? And and is there big room for improvement there? Yeah, so it's a great discussion. We talk about this a lot and it's 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 mainly a conditioning from a young age perspective at a young age, even on the guy side, you know, you're trying to get the serve in, you know, get the serve in the box, start the point, you know, figure it out. And as they get older, um, you know, a lot of the time it never changes. You sort of keep that same mindset of get the serve in and keep going. Uh, And for whatever reason, guys have changed that over time. You know, most of the time they try to hit aces. They they like the response from that and they're encouraged to do that. From a young age, I mean, think about it. If you're a coach listening, how many times have you said, you're going to have a big serve. We're going to develop the big serve. That's going to be your game. You don't hear that many coaches talk to a 12-year-old female the same way. And they should. There's no reason that a female can't serve, relatively speaking, uh, as well as, as a guy. Obviously, there are some some differences in sometimes height, but sometimes not. We know a lot of tall yep. females that are taller than guys. So height plays a role. It's one of the biggest predictors of surf speed. So um, that does make a difference. Um, strength is a component of it. But if, if females are training right off court, they can get really strong in the right areas uh, and can significantly contribute to that. So I always go the opposite and say we it's 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 not the player's fault most of the time it's the environment that they've grown up in and it's just become accepted there's no reason that females can't serve um really really hard can't serve and high percentages as well there's a big issue on on the wta tour surf percentages are lower so you know why would surf percentages be lower if surf speeds are lower um so that's something again goes into uh, the mental side potentially. And it also, if you look at it, goes into technically. I mean, we've done some studies comparing the top 100 ATP and WTA players and about 20%, 20 to 25% of the ATP don't hit these certain consistent variables on the serve positioning wise, biomechanically, whereas over 70% miss on the WTA side. 
So there's a there's a big technical difference between male and females, just objectively. Um, but they every female player I've ever worked with, if you work with them on it, they can easily make the adjustment. It's not that they can't do it. It's just either they haven't worked on it or it hasn't been encouraged or it's not part of the strategy. And I hear this a lot in high-level juniors and college a lot. Yeah, I'm not going to work on the kick serve. They're just going to hit a slice second serve. Um, so what you've already done is put this negative thought or this mm-hmm. I can't do attitude into someone, which I think is a real shame. Um, and that happens way too much. Um, there's no reason every female can hit a kick serve. Anyone that says they shouldn't or can't hit a kick serve, um, I just haven't seen it in 20, you know, nearly 20 years of doing this. You can get any person to hit a kick serve pretty quickly if you train it the right way. Powerful. And, and something I hope I hope coaches out there are taking on board for sure and and as as we move then down into into the younger the younger age age groups and and I guess from a fundamental standpoint when people start whether it's mini tennis at six or seven you know through to 12 13 year olds where where's your focus? You know, I know we've got our, we've got the eight stages, which please, I'd love you to bring into the conversation, but where, where's your focus? And then how, how does that then get progressed? If you are trying to develop the world's best serve and you've got someone from age six through to age 26. Yeah, it's a great question. So at the young age, you got to get them enjoying the game first and foremost. If you're too technical from day one, we got probably an issue. Um, so I always say try to get the grip somewhat right. I know it's hard for a, a real true beginner to go straight to a continental. So a slight modified continental, um, you know, maybe a little bit of an eastern forehand grip is okay. Just don't get them straight into a, a full western and have them just start like that. That to me brings in bad habits from day one, and they don't know any better anyway. So if you get them started slightly trying to focus on the right grip and i agree you don't want to get the legs in on day one that's really hard for a beginner it's nearly impossible so always just try to get a turn and hit so it's just a turn turn of the hip and keep the legs on the ground and hit if you're going to serve if you're going to throw obviously we have a throwing series of progressions where you'll throw and you'll try to train them to throw up not straight out which is a big important aspect of it and always throw with your hip a lot of people teach shoulder and arm, and that's all correct. But if they don't turn their hip, they're not getting that lower body engagement. And that's where we want to start with. So you want to make sure that you're at least instilling these components at a young age. And then over time, uh, you can bring the legs in when it's appropriate. And what, what I say that is because we know we've all worked with those athletes that five sessions in, they can do everything. They just great they they pick up information they're good athletes it's easy for them yeah don't say okay we're going to wait another year before we introduce the legs for you that would be stupid and it wouldn't be good for the kid Um, but there are other kids that yeah you may have to sit in this stage for six months to a year as long as you can get the ball in the court and you can get the point started at six seven eight you're not winning a lot of points on your serve at that age that's not the goal goal to get the point started and to try to teach beginner fundamentals that you can build off as the athlete's ready. Because as we know, the hardest part for a young kid is when they throw the ball up, their eyes look up, their head goes up. 
trying to stay in control of that is the hardest part of the surf. So that's always the most difficult aspect of it. Um, and at a young age, I'm super happy for them not to serve a lot as well. I'd rather them start points feeding um, than try to have them serving at six, seven, eight with terrible technique. I think that's probably one of the biggest um, areas of problems for a lot of kids is they start with bad technique and then they don't try to change it until they're 10, 11, 12. And then it becomes somewhat harder because they've got bad grips. They've got yeah. terrible movements, things like that. And in terms of the, just quickly take us through the, the eight stages on the serve. And I'm sure it does depend on the athlete, but where would you say the one or two key focuses need to be yeah. at different stages of development? Yeah. So this whole project came about from baseball, actually. I was doing some work with Todd Allenbecker, who most of you should know if you don't. He heads up um, ten, basically medical services for the ATP. And he's one of the best shoulder um, rehab guys in the sport. Pretty much every pro that has a shoulder problem goes to him. Um, but we were talking about this because he's been doing a lot in baseball for a long, long time as well. And they've had this model of pitching for 30 years that pretty much all the researchers use and everyone uses to analyze um, pitching technique in baseball. And tennis never had this really. Everyone would have these phases and combinations. And I saw something, there was a 32 stages to the serve at one point, which was not incorrect. It was just too long. Um, so we basically tried to mimic it off baseball as much as we could and get the right anatomical positions. So it's very precise on where these stages occur in picture form so they're snapshots in time and you base it off of video um so but it's pretty simple it's the start how they set up it's the release which is the ball toss uh and then it's loading which is lower body loading um and and then you have what's called cocking which comes from baseball it's a it's a it's a technical term that's used but it's the max external rotation of the shoulder so it's the tip of the racket ideally pointing down to the ground um, so it's the last stage of you storing energy in the upper body before you release it. Uh, and then you get acceleration. So your arms starting to move up towards the ball. Then you get contact, which is where a lot of people focus on. Ball meets string. Uh, then you have deceleration or your arm starts to have to slow down. Uh, and then you have the finish, which is when your foot lands on the ground uh, after the jump. So pretty straightforward. Every server goes through those eight stages. So every single point of that is hit by every person that serves a tennis ball some do it way better than others and that's what we try to sort of make sure <laughs> that people focus on going back to your question about the most important so there's a couple one is the release obviously ball toss position ball toss location ball toss consistency is so important and then the second big one is the release uh, is the loading stage which is stage three if you get two and three right you can still screw it up, but it, it's a lot harder to screw up. Most people look at contact and that's where they say, well, that's the most important. It sort of is, but you can't change contact. You have to change something earlier mm -hmm. to impact contact. At what age and stage would you introduce loading on the serve? So it's a great question. You want to do it when the athlete can comfortably release the ball so their ball toss is somewhat consistent. So they get a consistent ball toss. Uh, and that they have that ability to actually jump and land in a stable way, meaning that they have control of their head 
And so it's not a real age so much. It's more, can the athlete do it? The athlete, if you do 10 serves and the athlete can't do it consistently at all, it's probably too early. You know, they have to be able to jump and coordinate. And what we're saying, there's no issue about jumping. Some people say, well, they're not strong enough. It's not a strength issue. It's a coordination issue. You know, every six, seven-year-old can jump and land. Every seven-year-old plays on, um, you know, equipment in the park you know they can do the movement from a physical standpoint of the lower body there's no issue there it's can they coordinate it with the head with the ball toss with the turn that's hard that's hard for an adult i mean we see it on tour the players struggle to sync all those movements so i always say don't over teach a skill that the athlete's not ready for because you're just wasting your time and the athlete's getting frustrated so it's a lose-lose you know, you have to train, but you may do five or 10 serves every couple of days just to introduce it, show them the feeling, let them practice at home a little bit. But then when it comes down to making contact and playing points and doing all that, give them success. If we don't have success with a young kid, they're going to get really frustrated. And more, more often than not, they're going to move away from the sport and pick up something that's easier for them. And, and if, at that young age, is there any specific aids, tools, different things that you would use to, 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 help, to help with that development? Yeah, so we do a lot of throwing progressions, but throwing the right way. I see a lot of throwing drills out there, but you've got to make sure that it's tennis-specific and it's serving-specific. So we use yeah. a small, modified uh, American football is a really good tool because it tells you whether they're sort of doing it right or not. Because if you throw a small American football and it doesn't spin the right way, you know they're not kind of throwing it right. They don't yeah. have the right load, the right turn, the right release. The benefit of throwing a football is it forces you to get the right release, which yeah. is a big part of serving. So that's one. Um, the other is if you've got old rackets, we do some old racket tossing where we'll throw for distance. Because throwing a racket, one, it gives you the sense of the movement because you have to get the racket back in the same position. And then you throw it for distance. So we usually go on grass and we'll get some old old rackets that, you know, doesn't even have to be strung. Just old rackets and you just have them throw for distance. And it's a really good exercise. They like doing it. Just don't do too many reps. That's the problem. Um, the reason being is, the reason we don't have as many shoulder problems as, say, baseball pitches or elbow problems is because the racket helps us decelerate. Okay, if you throw it, if you throw the racket, you don't actually decelerate as smoothly because you don't have the weight anymore. You have to decelerate much faster because the arm has released the implement. So we usually do about no more than about 10 to 20 at most of those racket throws. Very good. I, because I'm conscious of time, I can feel my questions coming in my head thick and fast. Um, but I'm I'm going to move us into the last couple of questions. Uh, I I would love to get you on again. I would love to look at the movement side of the sport a little bit more. You know, I really would, but I I think it's too much information for us to 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 put into one into one episode. So tennis as a whole. It's a question I ask a lot of lot of my guests, you know, 
is it in a good place? Is it not in a good place? You know, where where does the sport go next? We're battling against the world of Netflix, Xbox, you know, this whole new TikTok world that these kids are in. Um, from your lens, where do you see tennis and, and what comes next for tennis? Yeah, so, I mean, as we know, the whole pandemic helped tennis probably more than any association group leader has ever done for the sport in the last 30 years. Um, it's increased participation substantially, I think all around the world, but uh, it's made a huge impact. So there's a whole new generation of players that have picked up the sport in the last two years. Uh, the big question now is how uh, do you maximize that? What are the opportunities for those players, you know, from a competitive environment for sure, um, that sort of is there for the super competitive, but there's a lot of people that aren't competitive. And I don't think tennis does a very good job for players that want to play socially without a heavy competitive angle to it. So more opportunities need to be on the social side of playing for fitness, playing for fun, playing for health and playing to be around their peers. So that's an area of opportunity, and that's more at the club level, at the at the recreational level, uh, and you, you're seeing it in all these other racket sports kicking in that are a little less competitive, that are more socially based. Um, and tennis has to be real careful of that because it's taking a piece of the pie. It may yep. only be one or two or three percent a year, but over ten years, that's a third of your your group of you know, people that buy rackets, that buy balls, that watch t tennis on TV. So that's a big area of opportunity, but also a big area of risk. Uh, from a pro level, there's a lot of problems, obviously. I think everyone sees that. Um, you've got issues with, like in society, you've got the top players making a lot, which they deserve because they draw the tickets. But how do you increase the ability for players to stay in the sport and make it to the top? So there needs to be, I think, more regional tours where you can really do a better job of promoting your homegrown talent uh, in your areas where people would actually care more about those players. It's really hard for a small tournament to promote someone from way across the globe that doesn't speak their language, that doesn't have any connection to that city that's hosting the event. Whereas if you had more regional tours, you could really make these people between 100 and 250 in the world uh, mini stars in their home communities. And I think there's a need for that. Uh, that would really, really help. And then they sort of feed in. It is the Challenger Tour as it's currently designed, but it's regionalized. And you make those people mini celebrities more so because right now it's really hard. Most of those events are underfunded. It's nearly impossible to make money off those events because there's no draws and you've got to create the celebrity and the star power at those events. Cause we all know that level is just as good as what we see on TV. They're the same players many weeks. They just go from one event to the next, but no one knows them yet because they're young. Uh, so that's a huge opportunity for the sport, but it, like everything else, it takes leadership. Uh, it requires people to really see the future and where it's going. We have to incorporate technology into the broadcast better Unfortunately, commentary hasn't progressed in 30 years. Um, and I think commentary needs to be completely different. Uh, in my mind, you need to provide relevant stats presented the right way that people can understand what's going on better. Because most recreational fans don't understand tennis. 
They don't understand yeah. the intricacies of it. You have to have someone explain this person in here because they're trying to open up the court to get at this person's weakness over here. And you can show that in different ways. They need big screens with sort of one minute educational sessions about what just happened in those points and why. Uh, other sports are doing that a lot more. Tennis is just a little, a little behind on that aspect. And I think there's a huge opportunity there to get more people watching because we do, we need more people watching the big events. The big events are celebrity events, tennis events. Um, they're the place to be and place to be seen and they're going to do fine. It's those mid-range and lower-level events that are really struggling and they need the support right now. Well, you don't have a lot going on at the Kovacs Institute, Mark, so maybe this could be another <laughs> another little strand to, to what you guys do. And before we go to our quick fire round at the, at the very end, what's, what's your goals, your your motivations, you know, you've you've been highly, highly successful over the last 20 years since our paths crossed in, in our college days and, and a massive well done on that. Thank you for all that you're doing in the tennis industry. But how do you keep your motivation? Where does where does that go next? How do we not lose you to all of those other sports that I'm sure are clamoring for your for your time as well? Yeah, no, I mean, the last two years, I was working full-time pretty much in the NBA. I was working with the Cleveland Cavaliers, um, traveling with the team, the, 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 full, the full experience there. And, and that was great because it, it highlights the other sports. You learn a lot. You've been around a lot of coaches that have a very different background, a lot of athletes that, you know, most people think the NBA has some of the best athletes in the world, and they definitely do but they also have a lot of the same challenges that any athlete has. Um, you know, they've got some physical gifts that make them great, but it also creates some challenges that you have to work through. So from a tennis standpoint, yeah, no, just doing a lot of projects that I like with people I like um, and, you know, helping a, a lot of players behind the scenes. You know, I try to keep my head down with the stuff I do with the players. That's, you know, usually pretty quiet. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of players in, in tennis doing a lot in baseball right now uh, as well. Uh, so it's, it, it's fun, you know, about half the day is usually spent with athletes and about half the day is spent on research, uh, development, uh, working in sport technology and things like that. Sometimes you, you take on too many pieces um, and that's always the big challenge is prioritizing because like you and all the things you've got going on, you sort of got to prioritize. Uh, and a lot of the time it comes down to who, from an athlete standpoint, wants to be the best. And that's usually who I gravitate to. Uh, I like working with everyone, but they have to have a little desire there to do something that's really hard to do and are willing to put the work in. Because as we know, it, none of this happens without work. Your passion and enthusiasm shine through and, and, I, and I love it. It's been, a, it's been a real pleasure for me to, to have a little piece of your time. Uh, I know that the listeners will love it. You know, make sure if you have listened to it, listen to it again, get your notepads out. There's, there's a whole lot of learnings in there. But if you don't mind, we, we never have an episode without our quick fire round. It can be as quick as you want it to be. Um, are you ready? Yes, I, I am ready. <laughs> what does control the controllables mean to you? Focus on what's in front of you. 
It's the six inches in front of your face. That's the the line I've always used. It's from a movie. It's the best line ever. Al Pacino. Yeah. You know, all, all you can do is the six inches in front of your face. Any given Sunday? Yep. Great movie. Serve or return? Serve. Forehand or backhand? Forehand. Your favorite Grand Slam? That's tough. That's, I mean, that's really hard. Um, growing up was Wimbledon. And I think it's changed a little bit. I really, really like the US Open. The vibe, the, the atmosphere, the crowd. It's just, it's just different. So which one? <laughs> uh, that's a tough one. I, I, I got to say now the US Open probably. I thought you were going to say the Australian Open after all of that. <laughs> yeah. The Australian Open's great as well. That's the hard part. I, I, they're, they're, they're all so unique. That's what makes the sport so great. They're, they're amazing. We're very lucky to have them all. ATP Cup or Davis Cup? Uh, Davis Cup. US... Original Davis Cup, though. I, I, I don't know what I, I, yeah, I don't know what it is now. It's really confusing now. It is massively so. US college or not? It depends on who we're talking about, but for the masses, yes, it's the it's the most obvious best option for the largest number. Doubles or singles? Great question. I mean, we need context to this. You know, <laughs> you can add the context. Um, this doesn't have to yeah. be quick fire. If you want to add the context, yeah. yeah. I mean, I would say if you had to pick, I think people actually like watching doubles better than watching singles if, you, if people were honest you just don't get exposed to the great greatest players playing enough doubles so i would say doubles Med- but singles is the best test of the best tennis players i agree medical timeout or not so my thinking on that is you get in a three-set match you get two timeouts for whatever reason you want and that's it and you get three in a five-set match and that's it. Use them whenever you want. For whatever reason, there is no medical timeout anymore unless it's an emergency situation, but then you still got to use one of those timeouts. Let's say someone runs into a net post, they would have to use a timeout to get treatment. That takes out all the, all yep. the negotiating, all of that. It's just, hey, listen, if you need more than two in a three-set match, you probably shouldn't be playing the match. Absolutely. Roger or Rafa? That's so unfair to ask that question, though. I mean, they're both so great, but I think you gotta just you gotta say Roger a little bit, just because of he transcends the sport just a little bit more than Rafa does. You're not gonna like the next question, then. Yeah. S- Serena or Venus? I mean, yeah. It to me, it's it's different. Tennis wise, Serena. Everything else, Venus has so much stuff that she does that people don't realize off court um, that she impacts. So Serena does as well, but they get so different. It's, it's tough. It's tough to, but if you're talking tennis, Serena, when most people non-tennis talk tennis, they always ask me about Serena. What's one rule change you would have in tennis? Yeah, it's, it's a good one. I mean, I think getting rid of the net cord on the serves I think is one that could be done pretty quickly, but it doesn't make that much of a difference. Um, yeah, I, I'm not. I'm not sure. I, I mean, I I think we know the tennis is a little long. So how do you shorten it? You know, a, a big rule change would be one serve. That would be a huge rule change. Um, 
And I think there should be some tournaments that do that. Some of the 250s, they should play around with a, you know, the slams shouldn't mess with it. Slams are great with what they have. They shouldn't mess with it. But some of these smaller events that aren't profitable right now, they have the ability to do some stuff. I think a one serve event would be really, really good. It would speed up play. Um, it would be really interesting to watch how they decide on how they serve, things like that. And who should our next guest be on Control the Controllables? Uh, I'd pick someone from another sport. I don't know how many people you've reached from other sports to speak, but I think it would be good to get a perspective of a coach um, from another individual sport, let's say a golf or something like that. That would be really good. Jason Bone, he's, he's been 16-year PGA professional, won a few tournaments, um, funny guy. So I could definitely introduce him if your audience would like it. Absolutely. I'll, I'll be in contact on that. Dr. Mark Kovacs, thank you so much for your, for your time. Brilliant to, to reconnect. It would have been nice to talk about our college days a little bit more, but maybe we'll do that when I come and see you at some point. I'll definitely get over. Keep up the great work and thank you so much for your time. No, I appreciate it. Always great catching up and, and keep up everything that you're doing. This is awesome. A big thank you to Mark for that and what, what a brain, what knowledge that man has. Uh, incredible. I know I touched on it throughout the episode, but so many of us were still drinking beer, not sure what we're going to do with our lives after we left college. And he has gone on and just rocked the world in his field. So a big well done and thank you to Mark. And as always, we've got Vicky, not next to me actually today. I've got her across a video call because I'm in Albania. Vicky is, is back in Spain. But welcome to the show, champ. The 2021 best tennis podcast at the Sports Podcast Awards last week. Incredible, eh? I know. I still can't believe it. I'm still smiling. <laughs> Just, uh, well, shocked and excited, I think. I still can't, can't believe we actually won. Well, so you should be smiling because, and I have to get it on record, the, the real stars of the show, as well as our guests, of course, are uh, the tireless work that you put in, Vicky, but also Dennis, Matt and Faye behind the scenes to, to make me sound better than I actually do, to, to get the podcast out there far and wide. And you guys thoroughly deserve this award. So a big, big well done from me to you and, and to the rest of the crew as well. And if you are new to the podcast on the back of seeing us as the best tennis podcast, I hope this first episode has, has lived up to, to what you expected. You have another 157 to go and listen to. If you are someone who's been with us from the beginning, as always, a big thank you. A big, big thank you to you. Thank you for your loyal following, your support. And we will continue, I promise, to keep bringing lots of, lots of amazing guests to you. And also, can we say, if you did take the time out of your day to vote for us, a massive thank you. I suspect it was probably quite a bit of a close contest in the tennis category. So we're really excited. Thank you. And actually, we, we watched the whole Sports Podcast Awards because we were right at the very end. And there were some amazing, amazing sports podcasts involved. So definitely worth um, checking out some of the other ones. And also, I can't not mention... Um, you being a bit of a, a billboard sensation as well off the back of this. <laughs> well, when I, when I saw that, 
We'll have to post. We'll have to post the pictures in the show notes. Everybody that's been saying you must have photoshopped that. You must have photoshopped that. And like I said to somebody online, I said you're giving me way too much credit if you think I have the ability to photoshop that onto the M62 billboard. So yeah, I am um, just just a really cool few days. A, re- a really a really nice for I think everyone involved with control the controllables to to get that level of recognition. Uh, but but ultimately, you know, as as we've said earlier, lots of amazing podcasts out there. We'll keep our heads down. We'll keep working, working to bring uh, the best possible episodes and guests to you over the next few weeks and months. And moving on to, we've talked, I think, enough about the podcast awards show for now. So moving on to our our fabulous, amazing guest, um, an old college buddy of mine, Mark Kovacs, uh, a serious, serious brain on him, someone who has just gone on and, and learned so much about the human body, linked that to, to, to elite sport. Lots of different topics, but one that certainly jumped to mind for me, Vicky, and this also hits home a little bit being in Albania. It's an under-12 tournament. I'm watching the boys. I'm watching the girls. They're both hitting the ball the same. Possibly the girls are hitting the ball harder. I don't particularly see the boys serving any harder. And the fact that he said he thinks the women can pretty much serve as hard as the men or and, and equally hit as big a kick serve as the men as well. What did you think about that one? I was like, yes, when he was talking about we can hit it as hard. Um, of course we can. <laughs> um, the kick serve, I um, have never come across a kick serve um, playing any female ever like I have playing a man I, I've just never ever seen it in in my time it, to the point where we would play and I would prefer to return your first serve um the minute I had to try and get my head around your kick serve oh god it's just horrendous I would never be able to um hit that same serve but like you said it was really interesting is that because I have not been taught it I think I think I I think it's a, a little one that I disagree with. It's it's not easy to disagree with the serve doctor, uh, but I think there will be a few people out there that will disagree with that because I think I think the the reality it's like hitting a golf shot. You know the reality is, you know the 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 male body is going to hit the ball a, a little bit further than the female body with strength. But what I do agree with is is this whole concept. And I actually don't just want to make it a male-female thing. I actually see it a little bit in Spain as well, you know, with the with the young boys and girls, the service kind of taught as a starting point of the point, not necessarily taught as someone who's trying to find a competitive advantage from the word goal. And, and I do think... I do think that by us opening our minds and teaching younger girls that you can use your serve to be a competitive advantage and to get up in the point will change the way that it's looked at. And I'm sure that there can be more that is squeezed out. Uh, Ironically, actually, he said he, he thinks there'll be lots of women that'll serve 15 or 20 aces in a match. The next day, actually, I watched Naomi Osaka and I think she served 13 or 14. So I think there is some girls out there, women out there that are, that are starting to take the serves to the next level. And I agree with the bit about the intention, but I'm not sure I fully agree with the bit about the strength. Do you teach the girls at the academy the same kick serve that you would teach the boys? 
Yes. From a young age, absolutely. You know, and I think I think one thing that, that we we do do actually at the academy is ultimately at a, at a younger age we're trying to we're trying to teach and give all of the tools in the toolbox from a very young age, whether it's a kick serve, a drop shot, a slice, a smash, a backhand smash. You know, all of these different coordination techniques and skills. Um, I would say there's certain differences. You know, court position from quite a young age, maybe start talking a little bit more to the girls about playing inside the court, playing a little higher up in the court. Uh, but if I think about our 2009 to 2011 players, the person with the best serve is 100% a girl, you know, and she's got a she's got a brilliant kick serve as well, you know. So I would say yes, but it's going to be really important. And one big takeaway I hope for coaches and players and parents is that the words that are used, the way that we speak around girls and boys, but they're, they're so influential to what they believe that they can do. And we need to keep pushing them, keep making people believe that they're able to, to do things that maybe traditionally we've been told that they can't. And I think that was a, a brilliant message that was given by, uh, by Mark throughout the episode. I like how you broke it down actually into the age groups when talking about the serve from pros all the way down to minis and how interesting when he was talking about the pros about how if they didn't see an improvement after 10 serves, then it wasn't the right solution. Loved it. Loved it. I think, I think listening to someone who has so much authority, (laughs) you know, he's worked with, I know he's worked with Apelka as well, worked with Isna potentially two of the biggest serves in the game. And, and, and I loved it because ultimately buy-in is, is massive. And, and if you're, you're, you're at that end of the game where you're trying to get these real small marginal gains, then they will, they'll feel it. If, you're, if they're not feeling a difference within the first few serves, you haven't got their buy-in. You know, if, if they are feeling a difference, then it's it's fair game. You, you, you've got an open mind now and you can really impact. I think where I'd be a little bit careful with that would be around a youngster, you know, because I think youngsters will typically, we can use our boy as this example, oh, it feels horrible. Yeah, but for you to have a good serve in five, 10 years, you've got to go through the feeling of horrible to change a, a, a mechanic within your throwing action, as an, as an example. Uh, but I thought that was a really nice, interesting point, uh, something that I'm not sure how much coaches have thought about that. I also have to say I quite like the way he positioned himself and sometimes that positioning of being a consultant, there's less pressure you're coming in to have the special little magic dust. And uh, you could argue there's more pressure, but it's not the day-to-day grind. So if somebody is asking for Dr. Mark Kovacs to come in, they're already feeling like they need they need that special help. So he's coming in with a real chance to, to, to make a difference already. And I thought that was brilliant. And I know you mentioned as well, Vicky, that around the data, we spoke a lot about the data and there's, there's, there's so much data out there. It's a buzzword within the sports right now. And, and, and how, he, how he talked about just being careful not to, not, to, not to just keep changing the match plans too much. And people are almost reliant so much on the data that they're not putting that little feel into the play and understanding what the players' strengths and weaknesses are and, and sometimes overanalyzing what they're seeing. 
Yeah, there was so much to take away from that episode. I think definitely a, a notepad episode for everyone. And if you haven't had a chance to listen to last week's episode, um, it was a really interesting one. We spoke to Dave Pilgrim, who's a betting expert about the relationship between tennis and the gambling industry. And I had a bit of a, a rant at the end because I have some beef with turning on the television and seeing sports personalities, footballers, um, social media stars kind of promoting gambling in their adverts and woke up this morning, actually sent the article to you, Dan, didn't I? Um, it's actually been banned now. So gambling and betting companies are not able to use all these people to promote their companies, which is one of the things I was ranting on about last night. So w- weird, weird timing, but I think a, a really good move. Weird timing, or are we just finding out the power of Vicky Keelan's voice? You know, I mean, like, you know, you, you, you speak and the authorities action, you know, and this is, uh, you know, so podcast is that what you're saying (laughs) well if if there's any if there's any big concepts that you want to change out there guys you know make sure they come through control the controllables get vicky on your side but no i think i absolutely right i i I agree with you on on that point and i think it, it is right you know it's it's been right like you said in last week's episode it's the same with it's the same with drinking it's the same with cigarettes and, and, and ultimately, yes, the, the betting industry needs to be there for tennis right now. The betting industry is there for entertainment purposes, but the betting industry also costs people lives. And we, it has to be taken very seriously. So if that's being promoted by our big stars, then I don't think that could ever be ever be correct. And, and now that they've taken that away, I think that will just become the norm and we'll, we'll all accept that. But Completely agree. Great episode. Fair play to Dave for coming on. Uh, lots more good episodes coming up next week. Uh, certainly you Brits out there, you will know this young man, Joshua Sapwell. He was the under-14 Orange Bowl champion a few years ago. Was on for bright things, big things in the sport. He really was never quite, never quite made it through. He speaks so openly, so in such a raw manner about that. That's the first time he's opened up to it. That will be next Tuesday's episode. It's a one not to miss. Many more amazing people coming on over the next few weeks. Big love to you all out there. But until next time, I'm Dan Kiernan and we are Control the Controllables. <laughs>